Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a weekly show about the Swift programming language and other Swift.org projects. My name's JP Samard. And I'm Jesse Squires. And uh, today we're talking about the Swift 5 goals, which were uh, just announced uh, pretty recently by Ted Kermenich, the uh, uh, the core team lead. And uh, there's quite a bit to unpack in that announcement, I think. Yeah. Um, so the uh, the big ticket item is uh, right off the gate saying that Swift ABI stability is not a goal. It's not a goal for Swift 5. It's a requirement. Yes. It must be done, uh, which actually bodes uh, pretty well for us because we just happened to have recorded a, a four-part series on ABI stability. Exactly. <laughs> uh, before this was announced. So <laughs> Um, if you're wondering what that means, uh, well, now you have a whole back catalog to catch up on. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we don't need to cover the the details of that because now everyone is an a- ABI stability expert. Absolutely, because everyone yeah. listens to the show. <laughs> uh, it, it is interesting to note that I'm pretty sure this is the first Swift release to have uh, an actual hard requirement. Like this is absolutely, it, it must happen uh, we can't defer this uh, for another release. And it, even to the point where in Ted's original email, he said, uh, whatever ABI we have at the end of Swift, that or at the end of Swift 5, that's what we're stuck with. Yeah. And that's just how it is. That's what it's going to be. And there's no going back. After and it's, that. it's the nature of, of this specific task and or, or rather category of tasks is that uh, by nature, it is final, right? Um, well, final. It uh, needs to be maintained um, indefinitely anyway until the ABI uh, gets its second version update, um, at which point, you know, these decisions um, are kind of laying the groundwork for additive changes later on. So, of course, things can be added to the ABI contract, but none of the things that are being decided can change, can be, you know, mutated. Exactly. And that's really like the core of the ABI stability story anyway, is deciding what can be additive uh, and what what can be added later and what needs to be decided now, what's statically determined, what's dynamically determined. Right. Setting up a framework to extend the language in the future, yeah, which is, is so tricky to do, you know, because you really have yeah. to um, think in the abstract, okay, what are some things that we can decide up front that will still allow us flexibility to build awesome stuff that we don't even know how we're going to build it later. Right. Um, and so things like concurrency and uh, uh, other topics that that I'm sure we'll talk about some more. Right. So, yeah, that's that's the big ticket item. Uh, and also, as part of that, I mean, we discussed ABI stability at length already, but um, we'll restate that before we get to ABI stability, some a, a lot of uh, subtasks need to be decided. And some of those that were mentioned in Ted's uh, intro email to these goals are things like uh, conditional uh, protocol conformances and recursive protocol requirements. Those are things that you know are, are very user facing, but they impact what can be done in stabilizing the ABI. 
so, you know, this is really a massive umbrella. Um, and if you don't particularly care about ABI stability, uh, well, you might care about some of the things that need to happen in order to enable ABI stability. Right. So, you know, there's something for everyone here. Yeah, so the uh, the generics work in general is still not 100% completed, right? But this is focusing on uh, the aspects of that that just pertain to ABI stability and getting those solidified and uh, figured out. Yeah, and part of that affects uh, the mangling scheme. Part of that affects, yeah. uh, you know, we, we had a whole episode on how mangling affects the ABI stability story. So it also affects uh, you know, some of the some of the layout concepts as well. So uh, there's there's a lot that fits into the ABI stability dashboard. There's a wonderful dashboard uh, to track a lot of these tasks. So if you're curious to learn more, you can go check that out. But what is especially interesting to me, anyway, is how ABI stability is uh, declared as a requirement, but module stability is a stretch goal. Mm-hmm. And those are very much intertwined or very much related anyway. And so we get to this point where you kind of have to ask yourself, what does ABI stability without module stability even mean? Everything in Swift that you you talk to, including the standard library, is a module. Right. Right. And so what, what does that mean? Um, so we should dig into that a little bit. This ties into API resilience and uh, library evolution, right? Absolutely. Uh, which we discussed before. As an extension points to um, evolve libraries, evolve modules uh, over time, even after um, kind of your module is declared stable. Yeah, so this this idea of module stability is a separate concept from this core like ABI stability where we're talking about data layout and all of these other things that we discussed before. And even though they are intertwined, module stability can come later without too many detrimental effects. Yeah, by by intertwined, I guess I I meant that uh, they're they're closely related and having both together paints a much more complete story of sure. stability. Mm-hmm. Um but it's definitely possible to build the ABI stability portions uh before even stabilizing the the module format and there's a very concrete uh way for you to kind of look at those differences um if you open up a Swift framework, you know, a dot framework, because mm-hmm. that's just uh, that's just a bundle. You open up its contents, you'll see that there is the actual binary, the the dynamic library usually, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's a whole separate file. Well, there there are two kind of in the modules directory. There's a dot Swift doc file, which is like a binary serialization of a bunch of documentation components to your library, and then there's a dot Swift module file, which um, is, again, a serialized representation of what the compiler needs to know at compile time about what the binary actually exposes as its entry points, as its API. So that is the component that is uh, the stretch goal in terms of stabilizing. Um, and so the the main binary itself, that's what's um, that's the the core ABI stability portion. Mm-hmm. And so stabilizing the module is things like stabilizing literally the serialization format that's used for the uh, .swift module file. And conceptually, it's about separating. Um, so ABI is basically everything that happens at runtime 
whereas the module component is everything the compiler needs to know at compile time. And there's, of course, parts of the ABI stability that affect compile time, mm-hmm. but um, stabilizing the ABI without stabilizing the module format means that ultimately you can continue linking and targeting an older version of the binary itself as long as when you're compiling your app with newer versions of Swift, you also have a new Swift module that you can com- use to compile. Right. <laughs> the binary is stable, the module bit is not, and so this is really only useful for vending uh, Swift as part of the OS. Right. So that, say, with iOS 12, Apple provides uh, Swift 5, um, as all all the binaries for Swift 5 as part of the OS so that you don't need to be shipping them with your app. But uh, with each version of Xcode, Apple will need to provide an updated version of the Swift module. Mm-hmm. And Swift modules, they go uh, along all of the Swift binaries um, that are specific to that version of Swift until the Swift module itself is is finally stabilized as well. So when we talk about ABS stability, and we talk about how um, you have this binary, and once the ABI is is stable, then uh, you no longer have to recompile. Um, That binary will still be able to communicate with uh, other binaries built with other future versions of Swift, and that will be okay, but that's not true for modules in this scenario. That's right. Those would have to be recompiled. And it's mostly um, just a tooling consideration because Mm -hmm. uh, as an app developer, you won't really see the impact of this. As a library author, you definitely will. Yeah. Uh, So you won't see the impact of this too much as as an app developer because uh, the Swift module shouldn't be uh, needed to um, be added to your app bundle, Mm -hmm. right? It's I think strictly use at compile time. Uh, and sure, it will. It contains things like inlineable code is in the in the Swift module. Right, right. Um, and so, sure, it does impact kind of the the final resulting binary, but um, you won't actually see much of a difference. I think. Whereas as a library author, uh, this affects you in that you can't really benefit from ABI stability uh, to kind of maintain old versions of your library uh, for newer versions of apps that depend on it, you'll need to continue recompiling your whole binary for right, uh, right. For so that, version of Swift. Yeah, so this is really only if you are distributing your library in binary form. Yes. Yeah, so let's say you have the perfect library that needs no uh, API changes and uh, it's compiled for Swift 5 before module stability is there. You have no changes, but uh, now Swift six comes out, and uh, this the the module format has changed, or maybe like we we get this module stability in Swift six, even though you haven't changed your library, you need to recompile and redistribute that uh, binary for the library in yeah. order for your clients to work with that. That's right, and and this could be different. At the end of the day, the Swift standard library is just. Uh, Swift module, really, right. um, much like anything that that's built on top of that, like third-party frameworks. Uh, the issue, really, with making 
ABI stability without module stability useful to third-party frameworks is the distribution model that's used for apps on Darwin platforms, really, where mm-hmm. you ship kind of everything that it needs so that no matter what, you still, every time you recompile your app, you're still going to need to include a copy of the framework. Right. Uh, and so it's it's not um, not terribly useful for, for third-party frameworks because you can't just have just ship your consumers a binary version of that framework because you'd need different versions with all the different Swift module versions, Mm -hmm. even though the binary might actually be stable. Right. But let's say if iOS 12 is the first release to, let's say, so we have ABI stability, iOS 12 is the first version to ship with Swift, Swift 5. But if modules are not stable, then iOS 13 comes around, well, but then your app will break in iOS 12, or you'll still no. have to ship the standard lib. Or no, it's no. so the binaries are stable. It's the Swift modules that aren't. And right. So if you don't recompile your app, you don't need updated Swift modules. But if you update your app for iOS 13, and so you, now you have a new binary, you send out updates, and you still have users on iOS 12. There's no issue with that? There, No, there shouldn't no. be. Uh, I mean, there are problems that come into play if you leverage um, features that were added to Swift. Sure. In your app, right? right? So, like, say uh, Swift 6 comes with concurrency um, capabilities. Sure. Or even, even, yeah, so say Swift 6 comes with concurrency capabilities and Swift 5 didn't have them, but the Swift ABI... Uh, from Swift 5 to Swift 6 was stable. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're leveraging those concurrency uh, capabilities, then you're not going to be able to run on that Swift 5 runtime. Right. Because right? you're using stuff that, that hasn't been added to it yet. Mm-hmm. But if you stick to the subset that was available in Swift 5, then you can. Then, sure. then Even sure. compiling with Swift, Swift, Swift 6 for iOS 13, your app's going to be uh, compatible with, uh, with Swift 5 and iOS 12. I see. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So it's yeah, yeah. definitely going in the right direction. And uh, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't be talking about module stability as if it's this uh like impossible to have thing and it's just gonna happen for Swift six. It might actually happen for Swift five. It's right. just a stretch goal. Sure. So it's not a requirement. Uh and it'd probably be much better to forego that for a very nice ABI instead of cutting something short. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially given um the scope of who is ultimately affected by this, where the thing that most developers actually want is just to stop adding those eight plus megs to their app when when their users download it, um, rather than uh, dragging and dropping a dot framework into their Xcode project. Mm -hmm. You know, when you compare both, uh, and especially given that ABI is a requirement for modules, well, it's it's a requirement, or it's not a requirement, but it is... um, more advantageous to have a stable ABI than to have a stable module format. Right, right. Uh, Moving on, there's more than just ABI stability uh, that's um, part of the discussion for Mm -hmm. Swift 5, right? What other things uh, are are on the chopping block? Yeah, the other other big change here is uh, the change to uh, the Swift evolution process. So prior to Swift 4, well, I guess... Brief history is Swift 3 was a little bit chaotic with proposals. 
there's a lot of churn. And uh, to address that in Swift 4, the core team moved to this kind of phased process where you had like phase one of Swift 4 and phase two of Swift 4, where phase one focused on like the core goals and then phase two uh, focused on extra things that it's like, oh, we have time for extra things now to consider that aren't part of core goals, but still kind of fit with the overall theme of the uh, release. And that, I guess, did not really work out so well, (laughs) considering, uh, and it's no one's fault. It's just, that was not a great way to organize all of that work. It, you know, we still had to push ABI stability out to the next release to Swift 5, Um, and it kind of resulted in a rush at the end, which is also what we experienced in Swift 3, and it resulted in a bunch of proposals that were reviewed and accepted, but then there's no time to actually implement them. So again, this this happened in Swift 3 and 4, Um, and so now this new process is everything is happening now. There's no more phases. Uh, There's a strong focus on the goals, and every proposal must have an implementation before being reviewed, which is the biggest change, which the goal is to address the shortcomings that we experienced in three and four. Yeah, that last component definitely caused a lot of waves in the community where, you know, most of the Swift compilers written in C++ and uh, a large portion of the Swift Evolution community uh, are not C++ experts. Yeah. And so to now um, all of a sudden raise that bar for them, uh, it definitely um, ruffled a few feathers and not everyone was super thrilled about it. But there's still a lot of questions around um, exactly what the details are here. And from what I can tell, nothing's really been um, set in stone regarding what the requirements are for this implementation. Mm -hmm. So is a minimum viable product of a proof of concept implementation sufficient Mm -hmm. to basically just prove that it can be done? Um, Does the implementation require tests to be written alongside it? You know, how complete does this implementation need to be? And if the implementation um, is lacking in any sort of way, then does that hurt the odds of a proposal being accepted? Um, Those are all open questions at this point, from what I can tell. My gut feeling is that quality of implementation uh, as a broad idea there would not necessarily be negatively uh, impactful in the review process, which I think tends to focus more on the ideas overall I mean, implementation is absolutely important, but I feel like if you have something that's rough, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't feel like the core team would necessarily oppose a proposal just for that. Sure, but they might not uh, merge it. They might not accept it, right? So just like so far for for Swift 3 and Swift 4, we had this concept of proposals returned for revision. Mm Mm-hmm you might have the same concept applied for the implementation. Sure, sure. Where, you know, the proposal and the implementation coexist side by side. Maybe it takes longer for proposal to be accepted, but the amount of time that it takes for the implementation to land is about the same. Mm -hmm. It's just that you've kind of 
blurred those lines of where one stops and the other begins. Mm -hmm. And what I would really like to see is in practice, you know, even with this guidance uh, staying the same verbatim, um, in practice kind of having more of a uh, discussion-oriented proposal phase first and then uh, fleshing out the body of the proposal, much like our current proposal process or, or the SWIFT 4 proposal process, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, once there's some sort of consensus and clear direction, then starting with the implementation, just so that it's not as uh, atomic as it might seem, where it's all or nothing. Right. Where it's like the first time that the proposal sees the light of day in the public, you need to have a fully-fledged implementation. Right. You know, right. it doesn't have to be that extreme. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't think that's their intent either. I think there's uh, the intent is for the current process to still hold where there's a lot of discussion and having early core team feedback on whether this is the right direction or not, and hopefully try to mitigate people, quote, wasting time on implementing something that ultimately will be uh, rejected. Well, I think you can read the room, um, so to speak, as as a proposal author to uh, really get a sense of whether or not this is something that's uh, likely to... um, fit in with the rest of of the whole process for SWIFT 5. The other huge thing here is that the proposal author does not need to be the implementer. And there's some confusion. I think that this is where a lot of the controversy came from in the community where everyone was like, well, I have no idea how to implement XYZ that I want to propose. So now I'm cut out of the process entirely, but that's not the case. The goal is to encourage people to collaborate on this stuff. And if you don't have the skills to uh, or knowledge to, to implement the thing that you want, if you can help write the proposal, someone can step up to do the implementation, which has actually already been happening. I mean, there are a number of proposals in Swift 3 and 4 proposed by the community where the author or main driver of those proposals didn't write any code at all. You know, like I think Erica Sadoon, for example, has like, you know, 25 proposals or something. I don't think she's implemented any of them. Uh, maybe, maybe she's submitted some PRs. I, I can't remember. But, you know, it's like the ideas were good. And I think mostly the core team stepped up for all of those to implement them because they were uh, strongly uh, for uh, the ideas presented. Yeah, and you also had a number of community members that stepped up and, yeah. and built some of the proposals, especially if memory serves in the uh, later months of SWIFT 4, mm-hmm. where a lot of proposals had been accepted but not implemented yet. And mm-hmm. it, it was kind of a last-minute choice of whether or not it, it would even make it into SWIFT 4, and a handful of community members stepped up yep. and actually realized that uh, if they didn't do it, then no one else would. Yep. And taking a step back here, um, as long as people still feel uh, like they are, um, th- their ideas are welcome, um, this should only really be a good thing, where yeah. the same discussions that have been happening so far can happen. And really, if you're, say, the the steward of the Swift Open Source Project, and you're tasked to kind of set what you want the community role to be for Mm -hmm. Swift. Do you want a model long-term where 
the community basically dictates or requests where the language should go. And then a handful of people within your corporate structure build it out, right? Or you have this duality. Or do you want to find a way to encourage um, a, a truly collaborative open source environment where um, you don't just have contributors to code from within the company? You also, it doesn't really matter where they are, Um they can be working at a competitor. They can be um, just a a very involved user. Ideally, you'd want to see a world where this is distributed and not so localized to Apple. Right. Uh, there's a flip side to this, and th- this is kind of a cynical argument, where uh, Apple is one of, if not the most valuable company in the world, and this is encouraging people who are not on their payroll Mm -hmm. to invest a considerable amount of time to build something that hugely benefits Apple. Right. Um, And, you know, there's, there's some valid aspects to this, but um, also I would kind of see it as you can see this change in process as being really no different than what's been happening before, Mm -hmm. where if all you want to do, which is still, quite significant, don't get me wrong, but if all you want to do is the proposal aspect and not the implementation, well, you could do that yesterday and you can still do that tomorrow. Yeah. Um, And guess what? If your proposal was super well thought out and approved and went through all the right processes, well, sometimes those proposals still didn't make it into the language because they didn't have an implementation. Exactly. Uh, So this is kind kind of pragmatic and I don't see this as Apple saying, Oh yeah, well, we want to cut down on on the internal team and like outsource most of our languages development. Right. It's more let's open this up. And I mean, with with respect to uh, these proposals that were uh, accepted but not implemented, uh, at the end of the day, it's like, well, what's the difference? Like, does it matter that this all happened because there's no implementation at the end of the day and it's still not in the language? So. Uh, I think this is a way to encourage that, encourage these things to actually get done, um, and hopefully cut out some of the noise for things that uh, are just impossible, um, uh, or thing, things that just can't happen, like changing keywords or something right. like that. Because um, that means you're going to have to go through some, you know, huge implementation to change keywords, and like no one wants to write all that code to do that, you know? So uh, I would like to see Apple go a tiny step further though and uh, legitimize, I don't know, with some sort of program where they uh, dedicate some resources for implementers to kind of mentor or help uh, collaborate with community members. And this is where I think we can really address this concern of kind of Apple wanted to wanting to outsource or push out some some of the hard work that needs to happen to right. kind of absolve themselves of any responsibility. Mm-hmm. I think, um, which is again the cynical take. But if Apple had some sort of program where they were pairing um, implementers with proposal authors, or if they were dedicating some resources for this aspect of of mentorship or collaboration, mm-hmm. I think it would go a long way as a like token of. Uh, of good faith to say that yeah. um, they want to um, foster this community that they want to build and not just um, leave it up to the community on their own, which, 
you know, isn't pe- these people have other full time jobs? You know, they have other <laughs> responsibilities. Um, I would like to see that. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, in some ways that has already been happening, uh, kind of unofficially and informally. Just you know, through stories I've heard or people giving talks on contributing. Although they've usually been for like pretty small fixes or uh, pretty minor features or something. But it would be nice to see like a more formal kind of mentoring mentorship there. Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree that the generosity of, of the individuals on the Absolutely. core team and from within Apple is just astounding. But I do think that the messaging here and the optics really do matter. Mm-hmm. And so having something that's like you said a little bit more either formal or um or official yeah uh, would go a long way there yeah and and it it incentivizes them a little bit um and perhaps something like that would you know if it's part of their job to do this mentoring that could help because like all of us there's limited hours in a day they have other responsibilities uh aside from helping the community uh, with these things so yeah one one final thing on on this requiring an implementation thing the other huge positive to this is that then during the review process we could potentially uh, have a toolchain update including, uh, those changes that are in review, uh, perhaps behind a, a feature flag or something. Um, and we could actually try them out, or even the core team could build a version of Swift with these new features from the proposal, run uh, the source compatibility suite against this, really test the changes on real-world code as part of the review process. Um, and see how it impacts it. And that will give us even better signal on the impact of these potential changes. Yeah, it's definitely a huge advantage. Yeah, which I would have loved to have for the access control situation in Swift 3. That would have been really nice at the time to really see what those changes were were bringing to the table. Yeah, and the tuple splat as well. And the tuple you, splat. You yep. could have, um, you know, conceptually people knew what the impact would be. Um like it was, it was logical, you know, but yep. the scope of the impact was, I think, not so well judged, which yep. was hard to do. But like you say, with the source compatibility suite, uh, there's a very tangible way to fill in those sections that have been in proposals for a while on what the source uh, source change impact is. Mm-hmm. We, we'd have a very concrete way to measure that. And I'd go a step further along those same lines to say that this new process allows refinements to happen to proposals that are discovered as part of the implementation process, right? Right. It's often, it. I mean, it's next to impossible really to consider the full scope of uh, what a proposal means until you actually go in and build it. You know, what if um, it turns out to be extremely difficult to do this without drastically negatively affecting the uh, type inference model, for example, right? Right. Where, yeah, conceptually everything can be built, but then you go and build it and there's big performance issues, right? And so maybe you kind of need to rethink the proposal in the first place Mm -hmm. or the API or or things like that. So uh, hopefully this leads to better long-term results. Yeah. For sure. Now, there's other aspects to the Swift 5 goals, right, that are, uh, I guess, lesser and lesser in priority or 
still important, but more and more focused in scope. Um, one example is the uh, continuing the, the memory ownership model. Uh, which we've discussed uh, before in an episode. Things like improving string ergonomics, um, minor improvements to the standard library, foundation improvements, because the foundation team is still mostly um, yeah. isolated from, from the Swift team, right? Yeah, so there's kind of this collection of uh, kind of general improvements, things that we saw in Swift 4, improving APIs, adding additional APIs to the standard lib that that may be nice. Um, but I think uh, the one big one is uh, laying groundwork for a concurrency model, potentially. Yeah, and the memory ownership model falls into that, but right, uh, it's hard to imagine with the scope of everything that needs to happen for ABI stability, uh, really how far in the concurrency uh, space that Swift 5 would, would really be able to go. Yeah, it's Ted explicitly says this is a non-goal. Concurrency is a non-goal for Swift 5, although they will be thinking about it and trying to get some of that foundational work in place for it. I suspect that ABI stability will take up a huge amount of time. So I, I would be surprised if any uh, like user-facing features on concurrency um, come out of Swift 5, but uh, uh, perhaps. I think if anything, um, you know, maybe we'll, we'll see uh, some sort of proposal for concurrency soon enough that will really help um, lay out what kind of internal changes to Swift need to happen uh, especially the ones that pertain to ABI stability mm-hmm. that um, can can really set Swift up for success afterwards when when this is actually implemented. But before the problem space is explored, it's kind of hard to make sure that ABI stability will account for extensions in concurrency uh, in a way that doesn't terribly constrain the the way that it, that it can be built. I think in, in the very least we can most likely expect uh, concurrency to happen in Swift 6, hopefully. Yeah, or Swift N plus one. <laughs> right, right. All right, I think uh, that's all we have for today's episode. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter, Swift underscore Unwrapped. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me on Twitter at SimJP. And uh, if you can leave a review on iTunes, we'd appreciate it. And uh, feel free to join us in our Spectrum chat. So that's at spectrum.chat slash specfm slash swift dash unwrapped. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.